continuing with uh, Shanti Deva's text, chapter eight. Okay, and he's uh, is the chapter on meditation. He's dealing with uh, equalizing, exchanging self and others, and so. We uh, got to the first part of the text where he completely clobbered uh, our attachment. Yeah. And now we're on the part where he's saying that we really have, here's what the practice is. Yeah. Now that we've kind of dealt with attachment, although attachment doesn't go away and get dealt with forever until you. Uh, at least start getting to the path of seeing, which is a ways away. So, uh, yeah. And uh, so I took, I'm in the middle of taking a detour there, going into quite a long explanation about the equalizing part. Yeah. Um, we went through equanimity a few weeks ago, equanimity. Um, equalizing friend, enemy, and stranger. Yeah. And then here, uh, the equalizing is equalizing self and others. So that's what we'll be going into today. Um, I've been following uh, an outline the, of a teaching that Trichon Rinpoche gave many years ago uh, about this text that I learned from Sencham Subhagam Rinpoche. So, yeah, it's pretty potent. So, let's start with visualizing the merit field in the space in front and ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings. And thinking that we are uh, leading the sentient beings in creating, in taking refuge and generating bodhicitta. So I have a few minutes of silent meditation. So let's generate our motivation, and especially here at the beginning of the Shikshamana course, to recall that we're listening to teachings not simply for our own benefit, that our Dharma practice not, is not about my practice, 
my meditation, where I want to go, if people are noticing me, where I sit. Okay, we're not doing our Dharma practice for the benefit of ourselves alone, especially not for the benefit of a self that we misapprehend as inherently existent. But rather, our motivation is to really be of great benefit to all the other kinds of sentient beings. And the best way to do that is to attain Buddhahood. And in order to attain Buddhahood, we have to think about teachings. And to think about them, we have to hear them and learn them. It's not just a question of closing our eyes and making up some kind of meditation. So with that compassionate motivation, then let's share in the Dharma this morning. We may think what we do as one individual is not really so important, or we may think it's only important to ourselves, but that is not actually the case. One individual can do a lot of good for the world, and one individual can also do a lot of negative stuff and make a big mess. So when we are equalizing self and others and seeing that we all want happiness and not suffering equally, and so we are, there's nothing to make a big deal about in terms of ourself and our own self-importance, we're not saying that we aren't important at all. Yeah, we're not important in the sense of our happiness being more important than others, our suffering hurting more than others. Okay, it's in that respect that we aren't important. We are important in that our actions affect others. And if we transform our mind and if we're able to uh, generate compassion and bodhicitta, that can have a very big effect on others. Okay? So it's it's like when we were uh, going through Shandideva talking about the body, how there's, you know, in Chapter 8, the body is just some foul thing that, you know, no sense being attached to. In Chapter 1, the body is the basis of our precious human life, 
and we're you know we respect it and keep it clean and use it for the you know for our dharma practices yeah so we don't want to get confused in these different ways of looking at the body or looking at the self because they each have a certain purpose in a certain context okay and i say this because our mind as we have discovered very often during teachings, likes one simple, clear answer or one simple, clear way of looking at something. And such things do not exist. Okay, so we have to have a big mind that is quite flexible to look at things from different perspectives. Okay, otherwise we can come out with the wrong answer. Yeah, or the wrong perspective. Um, for example, uh, some years ago, an old Dharma friend was telling me how uh, she had done a lot of meditation about the faults of self-centeredness. And she really began to put herself down and, you know, just kind of, what a disgusting person I am. I'm so self-centered. You know, I can't do anything right, da 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 And she went to see one lama to, to ask if this were a correct, uh, and, you know, way to meditate, a correct conclusion from the meditation. The lama did not speak English, so there was a translator there. Okay, so the when she said, Am I meditating correctly by thinking, you know, I'm just so selfish and how terrible I am and everything? The answer came back was, yes, you are meditating correctly. And that made it really worse for her because she thought, well, the conclusion I'm supposed to come to is I really hate myself. I'm a horrible, selfish person. And when we were talking, I said, you know, this is a translation problem because, you know, the Lama did not understand the question, probably because of the translator, but also because of the cultural difference, because the Tibetans do not have the same kind of self-hatred and I'm worthless that, uh, you know, people who grew up, grow up in a Christian culture have. Yeah, so he didn't understand really what she was um, asking. So we talked about it, and I tried to explain, you know, no, we're, it's not that we're bad for being self-centered. The self-centeredness is our enemy, and it afflicts us, and we want to get rid of it because it isn't us. It isn't part of us, but it makes us quite miserable. Yeah, but to do this, we have to respect ourselves and uh, care about ourselves. That this thing of you know self-flagellation, I'm so awful, is uh, that's not the the right conclusion from the meditation, and that's not the right method to use to conquer the uh, the self-centeredness. Okay, so that's just one example of how we so easily. Um, misinterpret things, yeah. Um, especially because we're quite habituated with one perspective 
of looking at something. Uh, and so we just fall back to that. And it takes really a lot of effort to to change that perspective and then to develop a new habit of looking at ourselves and others with that new perspective. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a process. Okay. So in talking about equalizing, exchanging self and others, um, I was saying that there there are there's nine points in the meditation, and they're divided into three groups. Okay. So the first uh, two groups concern. Uh, looking at this issue from the conventional perspective. And the last group of three points looks at it from the perspective, the ultimate perspective, okay, how things ultimately exist. So the fir- of the, the two that are the conventional perspective, the first one is looking at it from the perspective of others, and the second group of three is looking at it from the perspective of ourselves. So last uh, week, we started in on that first group, the conventional group, looking at it from the viewpoint of others. And there, the first point was, you know, everybody wants happiness and nobody uh, wants suffering. And that we are all equal in that perspective. So it isn't just friend and enemy and stranger are equal, but our happiness, our suffering is of equal import, uh, importance with that of everybody else. Okay. Now, that's, of course, not the way we go through life thinking, is it? Yeah. We go through life, each one of us, thinking my happiness is more important than everybody else's, and my pain, my problems are more severe than everybody else's. Yeah, this is what sentient beings do. This is, you know, what each of us do, and trying to, you know, pretend that we, you know, are some magnanimous, uh, beneficent person um, is is just, you know, part of our mask, isn't it? Yeah. So, does this mean that we are bad people? Okay. Yeah, look at the syllogism. I am a bad person because I am selfish. Because I'm self-centered. Okay, there's agreement. I am a, I am a self-centered person. Let's admit it. Okay, might as well admit it. We all know that we are. We all know everybody else is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, does it pervade that if you are self-centered, you are a bad person? Well, what is a bad person? Yeah, we have to know, well, we know what a self-centered person is, but what's a bad person? Yeah, is a bad person somebody who is inherently, irredeemably evil? 
Do you know anybody who's inherently irredeemably evil? Somebody's going to say, Hitler. Yeah, Mao Zedong, Stalin. Yeah, but I'm sure if you ask any of their family members or their friends, they would say, no, they're not inherently evil. They care about us. They take care of us. They're very kind people. Hmm? <laughs> yeah? So who is some kind of inherently evil person? Yeah. So an inherently evil person can never change. Okay. So that means that before the Buddha became a Buddha, he must have been an inherently evil person who could not change, because if you're inherently existent, you can't change. You're permanent. Okay, so if the Buddha were permanent, how could he, you know, as a sentient being, when he wasn't a Buddha, how could he have become a Buddha? Are you, are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. So, okay, the Buddha, before he became a Buddha, when he was still Siddhartha and in his beginningless lives, yeah, he was a screwed-up person like us, you know. So, I'm sorry, I, I'm speaking about myself. Don't get mad because I'm telling you this. Okay. I'm not a screwed-up person. Speak for yourself and the Buddha. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, you know, but the thing is, everybody has the Buddha potential. Everybody can become a Buddha. So who is inherently evil? It's impossible to have an inherently evil person. You know, such a person is as existent as rabbit's horns and turtle's mustaches and weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They're all totally non-existent. Okay. So how can we say I am an inherently evil person because I am self-centered? Yeah. Just because somebody's self-centered doesn't mean that they were they are hopelessly, irredeemably messed up, you know. And I say this because in our culture, when we talk about shame, the negative kind of shame, it has the feeling of shame has a feeling like something is inherently wrong with me, and that's who I am. Yeah, but we see that, you know, that can't be. An inherently evil person does not exist. Yeah? So don't start putting yourself down when we say everybody wants happiness and to avoid suffering equally. Yeah, but I think I'm more important than everybody else. It's just the truth of the matter. But it doesn't mean we can't change. Yeah. 
if we couldn't change, then what would, what's the use of the Buddha teaching the Dharma? Yeah, if we are hopeless and helpless, why would the Buddha have spent so much time becoming practicing the path and becoming enlightened if he couldn't help anybody else because we are inherently irredeemably messed up? Okay, and why would he have spent all that time teaching? And why would the whole lineage have passed down these teachings? Okay, so this is important to think about because we can really sometimes, we, we um, shoot ourselves in the foot sometimes by the way we think. And so it's quite important to look at this and stop shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. Okay, so everybody wants happiness and to avoid suffering equally. Yeah. One of the ways I found very helpful to meditate on that is to start out getting in touch with my own inner wish to be happy and not suffer and really feeling how strong that is. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, I've been having trouble with, with my leg. So when my leg hurts, you know, it's so easy that that pain occupies the entire mind, you know, and all the mind can think about is my pain, not just pain. You know, if I felt pain, just pain, pain, you know, I could do that with the, you know, establishment of mindfulness on the body, just recognize pain as pain. But my pain, then the whole thing becomes really serious. Because this is my pain. And if I have a pinched nerve in my back, maybe I'm going to be crippled by next week and I'm going to be in a wheelchair and I'll never be able to walk again. Yeah? So you go from, when we focus on ourselves, it's one small thing, and we quickly go to an extreme. Okay, we are extremists at heart. Yeah? And we project the worst-case scenario. Yeah. But, you know, there's hundreds, millions of people, that, you know, billions of people. There's now 8 billion human beings on this planet who have pain today. Yeah, probably some of you have pain today. Oh, my leg hurts. I'm sitting here cross-legged. You know, oh, my back hurts. Oh, my shoulder hurts. My little toe, again, it's killing me. Yeah. So we have pain. This is part of having a body. Why does my pain become more important than anybody else's? What is the justification for that? Okay, when there's 8 billion human beings... And who knows how many animals and who knows how many insects? 
Yeah, all the insects, the bugs that are crawling around here, the stink bugs, the spiders, the flies, all of you think they don't experience pain? Yeah, when we move them, when we don't look where we're putting things, they don't experience pain. Of course they experience pain, but we don't think about their pain, their pains. They're only a bug, not important. Yeah. My pain is important, more important than anything else. Why? Because it's mine. Okay. So I asked Lama Yeshi one time, I said, well, what, what is it that makes it mine? Yeah. And he quoted Shantideva, and he said, just familiarity. Yeah, just familiarity with this body. And my mind, this was many years ago, went, no. It's not just familiarity with this body, because it is my sensation. You know? There's some special link between me and this body, which is mine. And there's this special link, you know, that I am completely bound to this body. So whatever happens with the body is me. Okay. So I'm still chewing on what Lama said, and I'm still chewing on what Shantideva said. But what I have realized is that if I'm grasping this body as me and mine so strongly, I'm creating the cause to have a, her a horrible death. Because at the time of death, I separate from this body. I mean, this body is just a bunch of vegetable glue. Yeah, that you're going to dig a hole in the low, in the Manjushri meadow. You're going to dig a hole and throw it in. Yeah, you're going to wrap it in this robe and throw it in. That's all. No box, nothing. Throw it in. Let the the, the worms have lunch. That's all. So, why am I clinging to this so much now? Yeah. And that's really something to puzzle over. Why do I cling to this? It's clearly not I or mine, because if it were, there could never be any separation from it. But, you know, I mean, by this, this evening, I could be dead and separated from it. And this body isn't the one I was born with anyway. I was born with some small body, eight pounds, two ounces. Yeah, not this body. And this body doesn't have any of the stuff that that newborn had. All the molecules and atoms in it have changed. 
So what's this identity with the body all about if what I'm identifying with isn't even the same thing as I was grasping onto, you know, all these years before? Okay, so, you know, this is the way we we kind of really dig into it. We can very easily say, you know, skim over it. Oh, of course, everybody wants happiness and nobody wants suffering and we all want it equally. We know this before we come to the Dharma, don't we? Yeah, we don't need Buddha to tell us that. But what we need to do is understand what the Buddha's talking about. Yeah. We know the sentence, but we don't really get the full impact of it. Yeah. Because the grasping at I and mine, and especially my happiness and our aversion to pain, is really strong. You know, and this holding on to this thing. But we're not even holding on physically. It's our mind, which has no form, that is mentally holding this thing. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And then we start to see how strong the mind is, that the mind can create this totally ridiculous, illogical, unreasonable way of looking at something and think it's totally true. Yeah. Don't we? You know? And when we look at it logically, it's crazy. Yeah. Why do we think? You know? And they even say that the thought that I am the body, that that isn't even an inherent thought. That, you know, it sure feels inherent, doesn't it? Yeah. But they say, no, it's not an inherent thought because we can imagine switching bodies. We may say, oh, that person's body is more attractive than mine. I wish I could change bodies with them. And we think we can think that. And they say that thought shows that we don't inherently grasp ourselves as the body. But it sure feels like it, doesn't it? You know? But when we look, I mean, what is this? And what about it is I or mine? Yeah. What is I? What is mine? Okay. Anyway, this is supposed to be on the conventional level. I'm going into the ultimate level. <laughs> okay, but I think you get the point. Okay. So, a lot to think about here. Then the second point of uh, from the viewpoint of others is that it's not right to give to some beggars and not others. But we should wish to benefit others equally, okay? So when it comes to helping others, yeah, it, it isn't, you know, why, why are we partial towards some beings want to help them 
and other beings, we don't want to help them. If we're partial towards other sentient beings, then of course we're going to be partial towards ourselves. Yeah. But why? Why, you know, do we think, oh, I want to give to these people and help them, but I don't want to give to those people? Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting to examine. Some of you have been to India. You know what it's like when you're standing there with about 10 beggars all crushing around you. Yeah. Saying, Bakshish, Mimsa, Bakshish, and pulling at your robe, you know, and you can't move. And you know that they're from the village, that they are not actual beggars. You know, there's real beggars, and then there's people from the village who are poor who come out whenever there's a big Dharma event. But they aren't the professional beggars who go around. But then why should we give the, to the professional beggars too? I mean, these people from the village, they have an income. Okay, they're poor, but they have an income. Why should I give to them? Anyway, they're pulling at my clothes and it's driving me crazy. Yeah, I mean, I want them to stop touching me. I just, I'm just trying to walk down the street. Can't you leave me alone? Yeah. Okay, so there's that not wanting to give. Then there's the professional beggars. Yeah. Well, you know, in one way, they're really worse off than the village people who come. Yeah, because the village people who, who have a home, they're poor. But the professional beggars kind of travel around and, you know, they can't walk. The village people can walk, but these people can't walk. You know, you see them pulling themselves along the ground or, you know, hobbling here or there, whatever, you know. And they're very often dirty. Okay. Uh, but we don't want to give to them either because... I mean, they look so ugly and... And them too, they don't touch us because they can't move very well. But we're just trying to walk down the street and they're call they too are calling out Memsa Bakshish, you know. But who do we want to give to? Well, our friends. Yeah? If our friends are sick. Yeah, we want to help them. If our friends need some money, we'll loan them some money. Yeah. Our family, we want to help our family. Yeah. Give some money to our parents, make sure they're okay. Yeah. And they're worthy. They're worthy of my generosity because they brought me up. And they gave me a lot as a kid. Yeah, but these other people? Okay. Anyway, my parents or friends are usually from my, my country. So that makes them better. Yeah. These other people, they're from not, not from my country. They're different. 
Okay. But when you, when, yeah, we have this kind of prejudice, don't we? Yeah, we talked about it last week. How we, yeah, we judge people by socioeconomic status, educational status, race, religion, you know, if they're, uh, if they're healthy, if they're sick, age, yeah, weight. I mean, we judge people a lot based on very superficial uh, criteria. Yeah, and we put them in a box, and then we let them sit there. That's because that's who they are. Okay, but when we step back and look at it, yeah, all these beggars, no matter whether we know them or don't know them, they're from the same country or ethnic group or whatever that we are. They're all equal in wanting happiness and not suffering. Not among themselves, but they're all equal to us in wanting happiness and not suffering. So we want, we consider ourselves fair people, don't we? Yeah? Those of us who are American look at Washington, D.C., you know, or we look at what's going on with certain political parties, I won't mention who. And we say, oh, corruption, corruption. Yeah. They're bringing democracy down. They don't believe in things being fair. Well, do we really, in our hearts, believe in things being fair? Is it fair? Is our partiality fair? Okay. So it's very interesting, isn't it? how we give ourselves all kind of um, space to, to be totally inconsistent. And we don't give anybody else space to be inconsistent. But human beings, you know, we who are under the influence of afflictions are consistently inconsistent. Yeah, we're happy one day, we're moody the next. We're generous one day, we're stingy the next. Yeah, we're happy to uh, join others in a project one day. We don't want to even look at them the next. But that's okay. I'm okay. It all makes perfect sense. You know, well, okay, maybe I'm a little inconsistent, but I'm not like other people you know, who are really inconsistent. Yeah. And anyway, I'm working on it, so I'm not as bad as those people. They, aren't, they don't even notice it and work on it. So I just continue being consistently inconsistent and thinking that I am consistently consistent when I'm not. <laughs> so I'm actually consistently blind <laughs> to myself. Yeah, but that's okay. You know, yes, I, I have my problems, but it's okay. You know, they're not as, you know, my faults are not as bad as other people's faults, you know? And I know the Dharma. I really try and be a good Buddhist. Yeah. 
You want to see the list of initiations I've taken? That'll show you what a good Buddhist I am. Yeah? And the and you want to see all my photos who've been signed by my lamas? With my name on it. Two children. And then, you know, with my teacher's name. Oh, you see what a good Buddhist I am? Yeah. Hmm. But the reality is, yeah, that uh, our self-centered mind kind of runs the show, doesn't it? And we justify everything. Okay, and this is why it is incredibly important to have a sense of humor when you practice the Dharma. Yeah, it's really important to be able to laugh at ourselves. If we cannot laugh at ourselves and cannot laugh at how ridiculous our our thinking is sometimes, then we get really stuck. Then that's when we fall into um, the inherently existent evil person. Because we're either the inherently existent marvelous person or the inherently existent evil one, and we go back and forth between the two. Whereas neither of those people actually exist. Okay? So it's not fair, you know, if we have beggars to to help one and not help the other. Yeah. So so then, okay, so we hear this, you know, also when you start hearing about the, the first uh, perfection, generosity, yeah, give up your body. Come on, Shanti Deva, you know, give up my body. No. Okay, I'm going to be like that lady in the Buddhist time with the carrot, giving it from one hand to the next. I can handle that. Did you hear about the story? The time of the Buddha was very miserly. She couldn't give anything, so the Buddha had her. This is a carrot. Practice giving from one of her right hand to her left hand and her left hand to her right hand until finally she could put it out in somebody else's hand. Okay. Poor carrot got really messed up. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) So, yeah. So then we go, okay. Yes, it's true. I'm partial. I'm partial to myself. I'm partial to my friends and relatives. But what do you want me to do? You want me to give everything away? Shanti Deva, is that what you're saying? That I'm supposed to go back and give everything away? Yeah. I can't give everything away. Because then I won't have anything. Well, that's true. So we do need to be practical. Because if we give everything away, then we're going to wind up begging from other people. And that's going to be a nuisance for other people. So we have to, you know, take care of ourselves. But we don't know how to take care of ourselves. Yeah? Yeah? Because 
we think, oh, okay, she's saying I can take care of myself. Yeah, so, you know, then we want to go practice alone in our, uh, our cave with central heating and air con in the summer and, you know, have a list of, of friends who are always carrying up chocolate to our cave to, to feed us and, uh, you know, writing us messages telling us what good examples we are. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, I'll take care of myself that way. Okay, so we don't really know what does it mean to take care of ourselves. Yeah, where's the line between taking care of ourselves and being self-indulgent? That is, that is difficult. Yeah. Venerable Jinmei and I were talking about that yesterday when we wrote, or yesterday, a few days ago, when we wrote into uh, Spokane. Yeah, how difficult it is to, you know, find that line of balance. You know, we talk about being, we really want to be a balanced person, but we think about, and I consider trying to be a balanced person kind of one of the major aims of my Dharma practice. Because if I can't be a balanced person, I'm not going to be able to do anything else. But what in the world is a balanced person? And when do you know that you're in balance? And the strange thing is, sometimes you really do feel like you're balanced. One day, and then the next day, you don't feel balanced at all. And you have to recalibrate what it means to be balanced. You know, and then by the time, maybe mid-afternoon, you feel balanced again. But by the time you get to the evening, you're exhausted and you're unbalanced. And then, okay, so tomorrow morning I'll sleep and then I'll wake up, I'll be balanced again. You know, you wake up, yeah. But you're still um, imbalanced. Maybe over something diff different than you were unbalanced about the previous evening. Yeah, because you had a whole night to sleep on me, I, my, and mine and <laughs> make a big deal about something about yourself. Yeah, even in your dreams. And then, oh, I don't feel very balanced this morning. I mean, we think that being balanced is like some predetermined, very clearly delineated line. You know, okay, this is imbalanced, this is balanced, here's the line right there. And I'm going to be right, you know, or no, here, here's imbalanced self-indulgence. Here's imbalanced uh, ignoring myself and hating myself. So I'm going to be right on the line there. I'm going to be nice and balanced. Yeah, but it's not some predetermined, already determined line of between balance and imbalance that you just have to find, and then you're going to stay there the rest of your life. Because we are affected by causes and conditions. So 
whatever is balanced today, you change one little condition and you become imbalanced. Yeah? You're balanced this morning and then you you come to lunch. Yeah? And by the time it's your space in line, all the broccoli is gone. You know? And you need broccoli because it has calcium and for your bones. And those other people took the broccoli. Oh, but there's chocolate on the dessert table. So forget the broccoli. I'll just eat some extra chocolate. Yeah. So we just, you know, we get unbalanced like that, don't we? Yeah. And we switch flip-flop. Yeah. But we think we're quite consistent people. <laughs> yeah. But actually, you know, I've thought about this. Some people, you know, well, I used to think about this <laughs> in this way. I had one person who was quite balanced. And, you know, every day I saw her. We roomed together for a while. I would know who I was meeting the next day because she was quite, you know, kind of balanced and very, a very caring person, you know. So I, it felt very safe and, and nice. And I knew every morning I was going to meet a night person, you know. And, and this was my idea, you know, and we were working together actually to set up the Abbey and I thought, this is great, and this is who she is, uh, until she uh, said, no, she's not going to help me to work on the Abbey anymore because she has some health problems. What? But, 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 you, you're consistent, and you said you would, and, and, yeah. You're not supposed to have health problems. What are you doing having health problems? Yeah, you're supposed to be helping me. Okay. So finding, you know, we think somebody else is totally balanced and we know who we're meeting every day when we see them. We don't even know who we're meeting with ourselves every morning when we wake up. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't believe in impermanence, maybe this is a good way to meditate on it too. <laughs> yeah. Everything's changing all the time. Yeah. So instead of relating to everything as if it were fixed and permanent, we need to know how to be flexible. Yeah. Okay, so that's the second point. It's not right to give to some beggars and not others, uh, but we should wish to, to help people equally. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we give everything away. And that also doesn't mean we don't have any discrimination in terms of who we give to, who we practice generosity with. Okay. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure when I give something that it's going to be used properly, especially if I, if I give a financial donation, okay? So 
if I meet somebody at a gas station who looks like they're stoned and they are asking me for money, I say no. Yeah, because I know they're going to use it, you know, and go out and get some more dope. Okay. But I will give them some food because I know that even if they're loaded, they're hungry. Yeah, so I can give them some, some food. That's fine. I, I don't give them money. Yeah. And when I give to charities, I like to know that uh, it's being used responsibly. So I often look at the reports or I ask questions, you know, because is this just one person asking me to help their friend in another country? And, you know, I, yeah, one time that happened and I gave some money, you know, because it was somebody's friend in, in India. And then some time later I asked, well, how's your friend? And the person I gave it to said, uh, well, I never was able to get the money to her to get it to India. So where is the money right now? I forget what she said. But, you know, I, I check things out and make sure people are reliable, you know, and that things get used properly. Yeah. But does that mean I never give to beggars? No, it doesn't mean that either. When I lived in Dharamsala, yeah, there were certain beggars who lived in Dharamsala. Yeah. We all knew each other. Yeah. yeah. Those of you who've lived there know. And uh, every, you know, whenever I was going to town to buy groceries, you know, they would be sitting there and we'd say hello and I recognize them and they recognize me. And, uh, you know, and then what started was the internal battle of, uh, yes, I know them. You know, they're no longer in the stranger category. They're the beggars, you know, my neighborhood beggars. Yeah. So I should give, you know, you give to the people you know and you live with and they smile at you and you smile at them. But I'm living in India and I have $50 to my name and no benefactor. You know, and in those days... Uh, a cup of tea costs 25 pesos. 25 pesos. Now it's like, how much is a cup of tea now? Must be at least maybe 10, 15 rupees. Okay, we're having a consultation. Yeah. yeah, and tea? How much is a cup of tea? You guys drink coffee, you don't drink tea. Right. Huh? Okay, well, here you're not drinking coffee. You know, we are practicing real asceticism. Yeah, me. <laughs> so don't think, you know, you can have your own jar of coffee under your bed in your room. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but it's much more expensive. But those days, 25 pesos, I couldn't 
I had to fight with myself to give 25 pesos so somebody could have a cup of tea. You know, because my mind had all sorts of reasons. But, you know, if I give this money, then I won't have, you know, and how am I going to eat? Yeah, but how are they going to eat? I still have more money than them. I can go and afford a cup of tea. Yeah, they can't. And I don't have leprosy. You know, and most of them did. So then you really see your self-centeredness. And that's when Geshe Nalang Daryes, he was the, the uh, teacher at the library in those days. His voice was like somewhere, you know, as he would teach us about generosity. And it's like, I'm walking past these beggars who want 25 cents for a cup of tea that is this big. And I'm fighting with myself. And guess you know, I'm talking, you create so much merit when you're generous. And I'm going, but get Okay. So that's the second point, you know. There, there's a lot to chew on here, isn't there, you know? We keep digging and we just see more and more self-centeredness. But that's the reality of being, you know, in samsara, so we got to get out. Okay, the third point. It's not right to treat some patients and not others, but we should wish to remove all suffering equally without thinking of helping some and neglecting others. Yeah? So it's similar, but a little bit different, you know? The beggars are asking for something. The, the patients also are asking for something, but, uh, you know, it's a different kind of circumstance. But why do we want to help some sick people and not others and not benefit everybody equally? Well, if you're my relative, if you're my parents, if you're my best friend, if, you know, you're somebody I've known for a long time, if you are my pet dog or pet cat, you are extremely important and I will help you. Yeah? And the way, the way we are with our pets in this country, it's amazing. Yeah? Really? I mean, people, we, people sometimes, you know, they sign up to come to a retreat, and then, you know, my, I have nobody to take care of my cat. I can't come. Yeah? Or my, my, my dog, you know, doesn't feel well today. I can't come. Or, you know, we get we we pray a lot. We do a lot of dedication for pets. People write us, and you know, their pet pig, their pet parrot. Yeah, so pets. I mean, they're part of our family, aren't they? 
You know, I know in my family, the pets were definitely part of the family. I call my parents and we talk about how the pets are. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Then we get around to gossip about the other relatives. <laughs> but the pets, <laughs> you know. Oh, Jody, Jody was the dog. Oh, Jody did this, Jody did that. Well, Maitri did this, and Karuna and Upeka did that. Yeah. And Mudita. Yeah. Okay, but the point here is, you know, why do we take, why do we favor some people who are sick and not others? Yeah. So there are, you know, we are, do have uh, certain social obligations, okay? But this, this thing about uh, equalizing self, uh, friend, enemy, and stranger and equalizing self and other, it doesn't mean that we treat everybody exactly the same because there are conventional social relationships, okay? We've had people come up here who just show up and they want to move into the abbey. Yeah. And uh, it's like, who are you? <laughs> yeah. And some of them have quite, the last one had some pretty extreme mental problems. Yeah. And this isn't the place for him. He was not going to get well staying here. Yeah, and so we wish him well, but we, he, you know, in your application, you know how you have an emergency contact and a safety net. So we called his safety net. It was his father, and his dad came and picked him up. Yeah, because he needed the kind of help that we couldn't give. Yeah. Um, so... It doesn't mean you treat everybody the same. Yeah, we don't go down to Spokane and say, oh, uh, you know, all the beggars can come and live at the Abbey because the Abbey is not, you know, a it's not a shelter. It's a monastery. Yeah, so you have conventional things and, you know, conventional ways of relating to different people according to the external circumstance. But what it means is in our hearts, we care equally for somebody. So even though, you know, the, the man who came, uh, remember the man who came in the middle of the night and set up his tent outside and uh, Venerable Sompton goes out in the morning and there's somebody camping here who wasn't there last night. And, you know, he just kind of showed up. His ride dropped him off and he pitched his tent. And, you know, he wants to stay here. Well, you know, we try and have compassion for those people. But again, we can't, you know open our doors to everybody yeah? because we're trying to have a monastery here. 
if we start doing that, then there will no longer be a monastery. And we think the mission of having a monastery is something that is really beneficial for everybody in the long term. Yeah. So we have to have certain parameters for, for that. But that doesn't mean we don't like anybody else. I think you packed him some food, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, he had bed bugs and he had health problems. So we gave him some food, drove him to Deer Park, was it? Yeah. And so he could get the medical attention that he needed. Okay. So we try and do what we can, but it doesn't mean you, you treat everybody equally. You have to take into consideration, you know, situations that might be dangerous and not be real Pollyanna about it. Yeah. Okay. But so here we're really talking about changing the mind. Yeah. But changing the mind should have a change on the behavior. So if we weren't trying to practice compassion, then the guy who pitched his tent, she would have gone out and said, what the hell do you think you're doing here? Get off of our property, you know, and gone and taken out a shotgun. That's what some other people in this neighborhood would have done. This is, you know, a rural neighborhood and people have shotguns, you know, and they don't necessarily like people on their property. So, you know, then they would have done something like that. Just get off here. I don't care how you're getting out. Just get off my property. Yeah. <laughs> the man who remade our first, uh, when we first moved in here, the septic system had to be redone. So one of the men who were working on it, he came out and, uh, you know, I was talking to him because I thought, you know, I want to get to know the people in the neighborhood and in the area. And uh, we started talking and he's a libertarian. Well, libertarian's okay. Uh, I can understand that. Uh, and then he told me the story about how he had a lot of guns and the sheriff, something, I don't know, he was making noise with his guns or something. Anyway, the sheriff came to his property to talk to him about the noise. And he took out one of his guns and told the sheriff to get off of his property. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't think I'll invite him for lunch. This could be dangerous, yeah. But I can stand out there and talk with him. And eventually, uh, we found some something that we both cared deeply about. He was telling me how he is uh, quite involved in his children's education. Yeah, this was before the the uh, the school board meetings were turned into political events. But um, you know how he really cared about how his child was getting educated and making sure his child was behaving well and doing his homework. And, you know, and so we talked about the importance of parents, uh, you know, really taking care of their kids that way. And it was a, a fruitful discussion. We both, 
you know, could share that point. Okay, so you can find something to talk about with everybody when you try, you know, and make some kind of connection with everybody. But, you know, so you we were aiming to level the field and not favor anybody in our heart, yeah, but to be able to wish everybody well. But we relate to people depending on the circumstances social circumstances, yeah. Yeah, if an old, yeah, because if an old friend, if you're living in the city, if an old friend knocked on your door at 8 o'clock in the evening and said, oh, I just wound up here and I don't have any place to stay, if it's an old friend, you would say, yeah, come on in, wouldn't you? Because you know the person, you trust them. Yeah, you don't want them to be out on the street. But if somebody you don't know came, uh, you wouldn't do that necessarily because, you know, there could be some danger involved. You know? And I think women are probably more sensitive to that danger than men are. Maybe men would say, yeah, come on in. But I think women would not do that. Yeah. Okay. So those are the, the three reasons that uh, come from, you know, the conventional way of looking at self and others from the viewpoint of others, in other words, who, who they are. Yeah. Okay. Any questions so far? Yes. Um, Venerable, how can I, how can we deal with this um, deep and profound, like, personal distress when we see or think about the suffering of others, mm. especially people or like someone who cannot defend themselves, in my case, like animals or like babies. What is your, I mean, the personal distress is so hard that I just can't. Yeah. How, what is your... Yeah. Okay. So I think one one thing is to recognize when it's personal distress and be able to say to ourselves, this is not compassion, this is personal distress, distress, and it's getting in the way of my compassion. It's getting in the way of my being able to actually help this person. Yeah? And, and to really call it out in our own mind, because when we cannot be honest with ourselves about what we're feeling, then, then we don't apply the antidote. Yeah. So we say, oh, I'm so compassionate, but I'm crying and I can't help them. But look how compassionate I am. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's some compassion, but it's a lot of personal distress that's interfering with the compassion. Yeah, so we want to really be able to differentiate those. Yeah, and then if, there, if we see there is personal distress, to because uh, it's, you know, if you're right smack in the middle of the situation, you have to do something different than if you're on your meditation cushion. On your meditation cushion, you have the time to really reflect on it. And what's my personal distress all about? 
What is it that is alarming to me? What is the affliction that is coming up here for me? Because we usually think if we have personal distress that, first of all, it, it might be virtuous because we're compassionate. Or we might think, oh, it's attachment for the other person. I care so much about them. I'm so compassionate towards them that, uh, you know, that that's my personal distress. But I don't know about you, and this is for you to research. My personal distress is because I feel uncomfortable seeing other people suffering. So my personal distress, again, re uh, relates back to I. I don't like, I feel uncomfortable seeing their suffer. Yeah. I feel threatened in some way by their suffering. If it's somebody I really care about, then the mind goes, oh, they're going to die. You know, extremist mind again. Yeah, oh, they're going to die. And then how is their death going to affect my life? And oh, this is going to be terrible. And then this will happen. That Because it isn't just somebody dies and that's it. There's a whole, you know, chain of events that happen after that to you, to the other people around you that influence you. And, and you know, there's fear about that. Yeah. What's behind the fear? Yeah. Attachment. Yeah, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I don't like feeling distressed. So if I can make the object that makes me feel distressed disappear, then I can recover from my distress. Okay? So if Aunt Ethel is in the hospital and, you know, Aunt Ethel brought me up, and I. she brought me up as a kid, and I love her, and, and she's in the hospital. I, it's, it's so difficult to go and see her in the hospital in that shape. And what am I going to say to her, you know? I, she probably won't make it. What am I going to say to her? I don't want to say that. I don't want to be in the situation of making healthcare decisions for her, and she didn't leave, uh, you know, uh, her papers aren't in order, I, so I don't know what she wants and how we're going to pay for it because she never did a power of attorney either. And I just, I don't want to deal with this situation. Okay? Or, you know, my pet dog, who I love so much, is, you know, he's, he's having seizures. And, you know, I can't stand him to see him having seizures. If I euthanize him, then he's out of that suffering. And then I don't have to see this dog that I love so much having seizures. Yeah? So, so often with the personal distress, it's, it's, we try and do something with the objects to get it away in some, you know, shape or form, so that our we so that uh, our pain stops. 
our grief stops. Yeah. But, you know, the way I think first, you know, really seeing where where the personal distress comes from and, and is really important, calling it out. And then tracing it back, you know, what what is it coming back to? Well, it's comes there's there is some genuine care, but there's also a lot of me, I, my, and mine in there. And that's presenting an obstacle. Okay. So what can I do? Well, in the case of Aunt Ethel and the case of my dog, you know, what was the Buddha's first teaching on? What was the Buddha's first teaching? Hmm? Yeah, but within that, what was the first point in that? Impermanence. What was the Buddha's last teaching? He died. Impermanence. Okay. So, you know, I'm, why am I having personal distress? Because I'm not seeing impermanence. I want things to be fixed and predictable and permanent. They should not change unless I want them to change. If I want things to change, then impermanence is great. But if I don't want anything to change, they sh it should not change. Do I have any control over it? No. Does anybody have any control over it? Can anybody stop change? No. Change is in our very fabric. It's the very fabric of our life. Okay? So if I can habituate myself with change, and I know, yeah, Aunt Ethel changed from the way she was before, you know, and Rover changed, yeah, or Frisky, yeah, Frisky, Rover. He had two names, you know, Rover Frisky, or Frisky Rover. <laughs> you know, they changed, and part of our being in samsara is aging, sickness, aging, and death. And they're going through that right now. And lo and behold, I'm going to go through it too in the future. So I better get accustomed to this and realize that this is part of what my life is about. You know, it's like the water the fish swims in. We swim in impermanence. Yeah? Birth, aging, sickness, death, not getting what we want being disappointed when we get it, you know, taking rebirth again and again. Yeah. So this is, I better get used to this because this is the reality of my life. And if I don't like this situation, then I better practice the Dharma and get out of it. And so then you use the situation to... Uh, increase your determination to be free. Yeah, your re your renunciation of the dukkha of samsara, and you use it to increase your your compassion. Because not only have I got to get out of this, but wouldn't it be nice if Aunt Ethel were able to get out of it? So in future lives, she didn't get born and 
aging, sickness, and death. Yeah. And so we use the painful situation to increase our Dharma understanding. And that Dharma understanding actually powers our compassion. Yeah, because then the power, the, the, the dukkha that we have compassion for isn't just the ouch dukkha of what they're going right through right now, but the whole dukkha of being under the influence of afflictions and karma. And that's a much deeper kind of dukkha, so the compassion for that has to be stronger. Okay, so we use it. <clears throat> 